I'm not. There you go. Okay. <laughs> All right, y'all. Welcome to the Full Contact Podcast. Um, you have your favorite guys guys here, except for Brian. He uh, got tied up with some prior engagements. But as always, you have me, Sheree Phillips-Keaton, got my guy, uh, Nick Sapina. Hey. And we got a special guest host on the pod, Mr. Kai Carlin. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I definitely appreciate uh, the love and support. So I'm ready to get going. Man, Kai's already talking long sentences. Nah, I'm just playing. Let's just get going. <laughs> All right. So right now we're making this show our NBA restart show. Um, since the first set of seeding games will begin on July 30th. Um, and we're making this a good time to talk to one of our guys on the inside of the NBA. And Kai Carlin, for those of you who don't know, uh, covers the Philadelphia 76ers. For USA Today, I know there's a lot of words that come after that on this podcast. I don't know them all. I just know USA Today. So <laughs> let's just cut to the chase. Um, Kai, we wanted to get some insight from you, um, at least from your perspective as a reporter. So my first question to you about the restart is, um, it was said earlier this week, or I guess late last week, that Joel Embiid was working on uh, seeing through double teams and trying to pass out of them to help them in late game situations. The question I had for you is covering the team for as long as you have, is there anything else the Sixers could do on offense to make them more efficient late in games? I guess like to really answer that question, you really have to realize that when the Sixers do run their offense, a lot of it does go through both not ben, not only Joel Embiid, but there's Ben Simmons as well. So you really have to kind of really morph those two together. And for Philadelphia to move forward offensively, there's a lot to really have to go into it. Like, obviously, there's this new change. Ben is moving to the four. Shake is moving in the starting lineup. Al's coming off the bench now. And I guess for them, in, in terms of their late game offense, they really still don't have a guy. And, that, and that's what they're missing with Jimmy Butler uh, now down in Miami. And that's something that they have kind of turned to Tobias Harris. And they're like, okay, Tobias, we've paid you all this money. You've got the talent to do so. We're looking at you to be our guy. Now, so far in these two for, uh, first two scrimmage games that have come out, they really haven't had any close games. They had a 29-point lead against Memphis. They had a 24-point lead against OKC. And they really didn't really have to go into a clutch game situation because it's just a scrimmage game. So when it comes to the late game offense, you, you, you really only have like what you see in the regular season before the COVID break. And that's that they go through Tobias Harris. And in terms of Joel, he does have to get better through uh, double teams. He's got to be able to pass. He needs guys cutting off the ball. There's a lot of things that go into it. But uh, their late game offense is still something that I really question. Uh, as the season does get to resume, just because of the fact they really still don't have a guy. They don't have a closer yet, to be uh, really to put it bluntly. Yeah. Um, Kai, you mentioned Al Horford going to the four. I just kind of wanted to get your opinions on that. Um, is that purely a response to the underwhelming first half of the season or first part of the season prior to the um, the pause? Or do you think that that – um, is a move that's really going to help him optimize his performance? It's a little bit of both. Uh, a lot of people need to realize that 
Al Horford is still a very good basketball player. A lot of people think that Al Horford is like washed or like Al can't play anymore. But the fact of the matter is it's 2020 and in 2020, a big lineup doesn't work anymore. And if this was 2005, we'd be talking about the Sixers as can't miss NBA contenders. Nobody's stopping them, but it's not, it's 2020. The game is different. Uh, Joel Embiid and Al Horford, that, that pairing had an offensive rating of 101.1, which according to uh, cleaning the glass is good for only the fifth percentile. That's absolutely awful. You can't have it. Then you throw Ben Simmons into that equation, and that trio of Simmons, Embiid, Horford, their offensive rating is 99.3. And if you have an offensive rating of under 100 in today's NBA, it's embarrassing. So really, it was a move to where you really had to make a huge difference there because of the lack of success you had offensively. But then even off the bench, a lot of people forget the Sixers now all of a sudden possess a five-time All-Star and a guy who has been to the Eastern Conference Finals three times in his career, once with Atlanta, twice with Boston. And you're bringing that off, off your bench. And he's a guy who can stabilize some things, not only with the second unit, but when Joel comes off the floor, we saw it in Sunday's matchup with the Thunder. Joel missed the game because of a right calf strain. Al Horford steps in. He pours in 13 points and nine rebounds in limited minutes. So Al Horford is a very good player. So I feel like it's a little bit of both there. All right. So um, this is one of the topics that uh, really grinds my gears as far as this subject matter. But um, so Kai, as you know, and Nick obviously knows for anyone who follows the Sixers, um, they were incredible at home and like the Chicago Bulls on the road. So given that the setup at the bubble in Orlando, Florida is basically a neutral field because there is no fans. Right. Kai, how do you think the Sixers will actually play once the games get serious? Uh, time will tell. Um, I think so far through these first two scrimmage games that have happened so far down in Orlando, the, the starting lineup has been great. You know, they've outscored Memphis and OKC. I think the number in the first half is like 102 to 79, the, the first two uh, first halves of these games. And that's because of the fact that this team is talented. This team can do a lot of different things on the floor. They have a versatile lineup with Ben, Joel, Shake, And then you, you have to remember Tobias and Josh Richardson as well. So the Sixers are a team that really thrives off of the passion of the crowd. That the one guy I would be worried about if I was a Sixer fan would be Joel Embiid, just for the simple fact that Joel is a guy who is a number one troller. He loves trolling people. He loves getting people involved. He likes getting beat under people's skin. That is something that is going to be something that will be missed uh, with, um, with this restart. And But the rest of the team, though, like Ben is a guy who just goes 100 miles an hour no matter what. Um, Tobias is a guy who's always been e evenly keeled. Josh Richardson played in Miami where fans didn't even show up till the second quarter. So <laughs> I mean, a lot of people got to remember that. The only thing, the only people you really need to worry about is Joel. He's the only person that I would be worried about when it comes to this restart, um, mainly because of who he is. Yeah, definitely. I'm on the same page there. Um, you know, whether it's Joel Embiid, you know, hyping up the crowd after an and one or something like that. Um, I, I'm uh, hopeful that we'll see that kind of energy from him, but you know that he especially feeds off the crowd. So I definitely agree. Um, getting back into a little bit of the rotation. Um, there's a few guys who Sharif and I have kind of talked back and forth 
could find themselves some significant minutes as shooters, um, as shot creators. And I think that the, the main three who are kind of like on the, on the border are Glenn Robinson the third, Alec Burks, and Furkan. Furkan probably, to me, has a little bit of a leg up because he's such a good three-point shooter. But who, which one of these three guys or multiple is really going to find themselves with a larger role for the remainder of the season and into the playoffs? I'm going to roll out of those three. I'm going to roll with Furkan and Glenn. And mainly for the simple fact. <laughs> and mainly for the simple fact that, uh, as you mentioned, Nick, Furkan is a very good three-point shooter. He's got his percentage up to 39.7% from deep this year, which is a huge step up on what he has shown in the past. Um, and then also Glenn is a guy who not only can he shoot, but he's also a very good defender and he's athletic, and which is what the Sixers want to do offensively. They want to get out and run. That's why they're making the move of shake into the five, Ben to the four. As soon as Ben grabs that board, go. Like Brett wants the team to run. Uh, and not to say that Alec Burks can't do that as well, but you have to kind of think about it. The Sixers already have their starting five, but then you look at the bench. Al is six players. Furcon's definitely going to play. That's already seven. Matisse Thibel def uh, definitely has a spot. That's, uh, that's already eight. And then at nine, you're looking at either Glenn Robinson third or Alec Burks. So, you know, like maybe those two can kind of uh, switch off back and forth to see who Brett plays. Um, but when you go into the playoffs and you really figure out that rotation, it comes down to eight or nine guys. You're not playing 10, 11, 12 guys. You're playing maybe three, maybe four off your bench. So that is where I feel like Alec really has – not 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 a terrible chance, but I feel like Alec really is kind of the outside guy looking in on the rotation at the moment. He may be using situational purposes to be like maybe the team needs a spark and Alec can kind of get to the rim and the free throw line and kind of see what you can go from there. All right. It's clear uh, I was higher on Alec Burks than uh, Mr. Carlin over here, but uh, be that as it may. Um, so as Nick brought up, we brought some guys in – uh, the latter part of the rotation that's going to have to step up. But, Kai, I uh, just want you to state for the record, who do you think on the Sixers will be a surprise impact player by the time these playoffs are over? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to roll with Shake Milton. And I'm rolling with Shake for the simple fact that, sure, he's in the starting lineup, but a lot of people still don't really know what shake Milton can do what what is shake Milton like, like like what exactly can he do on a you know a huge scale a lot of people forget I mean he is still only in his second season in the league it's not like shake is this veteran he was just drafted last year he was also I think the 56th pick of last year's draft a lot of guys picked 56 don't make it you know as a starter in this league not a lot of guys do right so sure shake is going in the starting lineup he had a hell of a run going into the COVID break. Uh, he shot 51.2% from deep over the final 20 games uh, going into the, you know, the league suspension on March 11th. There was a lot of things that really stood out to me about his shooting, about his poise, about his playmaking. But when it comes to the playoffs, Brett Brown has mentioned million, plenty of times um, since they got down to Orlando that he doesn't really like trusting younger guys just because he has been a coach with the Spurs. With the Spurs, they leaned on a lot of veterans. They Like, even after guys left, I mean, they brought in Michael Findlay. They brought in, you know, older guys to really keep that run going. So 
I'm going to roll with Shake. I feel like he's going to surprise some people because not everybody's going to believe in what he can do. Yeah, I like that. Um, and, and I think the sample size for Shake Milton is so small that the... 20 games isn't all that small. I don't, I mean, I haven't seen it for a super long time. I guess you're right. Um, maybe it's just that I'm not sold yet. I don't know. I like Shake, but I guess we'll see. And, and, and Shake is not going to shoot 51.2% from deep. I don't want everybody kind of getting the wrong idea. I know Sixer fans, I know you guys love to just roll with one stat and just run with it. But <laughs> I mean, Shake is, Shake, if Shake can shoot around somewhere between 39 to 42%, then that changes a lot of things for Philadelphia's offense. Um, kind of getting into the primary ball handler thing, I, I think it would be remiss not to bring up Ben Simmons and his position change. Um, can you just talk about that and what that's going to do for the spacing? Um, possibly we've seen a couple of times uh, Ben Simmons take a couple of threes. Uh, you hit one in one of those exhibition games, I think, against Memphis. Um, so could you just talk about that? Well, the spacing is going to be something that's very interesting, mainly for the simple fact that, um, as we all know, Philadelphia is a jumbo-sized team. They kind of said, you know, screw you to whatever small ball idea that the NBA was trying to push out. But then the small ball idea kind of caught up to them, and they were like, damn, maybe this doesn't work. So that's why they're making this move, bringing Al off the bench, putting Shake in the lineup. Now all of a sudden you have another capable shooter on the floor, a guy who's even morphing into becoming a sharp shooter if he continues on this track that he's on. Uh, and then you also have Tobias Harris, who is – Actually, Harris shot very well oh, leading into the COVID break as well after that really slow start from about maybe December on. He shot the ball pretty well. Then you have Josh Richardson, and Richardson is a better shooter than what he showed. This year, so far, Philadelphia, he's shooting 32.6% from deep. He's a career 36.5% three-point shooter. If he can get somewhere around back to 36 37%, that's a huge difference for Philadelphia as well. In terms of Ben Simmons, Ben is a guy to where, like, he needs to shoot in the corner. That is where he feels the most comfortable. He said that to us after the game against Memphis. He's worked hard on that shot. It's a shot that he really wants his teammates to go find him at. And if you had, if you take Ben Simmons out of the dunker spot, put him in the corner spot, and allow him to really grow as a player from there, all of a sudden that the, the offense has had a lot more space. Tobias can drive. Shea can drive. Joel has space. You can't double Joel anymore because all of a sudden in the back of the defender's mind, holy shit, Ben's actually taking threes. So that really does make like a huge difference for the Sixers moving forward. And at power forward, he's still going to have the ball in his hands, as you mentioned before. He's still going to run the offense. Brett mentioned it. Ben is still going to initiate a lot of offense. Maybe either it be from the high post around the free throw line, maybe it be from a rebound and just getting out and running immediately. Uh, Brett wants to use this team's speed. He wants to use their athleticism. He wants to pretty much turn them into the 2007 Golden State Warriors and just try to just track meet people up and down, which they totally can do with the athletes they have between Ben, Tobias, and Josh, and in Brett's word, a ground, a, a greyhound, and uh, Matisse Thibel. Uh, gotta love those Brett Brownisms. I miss them so much. <laughs> um, okay, so this has been one of the, uh, I guess you could say, lesser uh, talked about topics, but it has been a constant through the season. Obviously, uh, people will hold it against Brett Brown if the Sixers lose in the first round, or at the very least, don't make a strong uh, second round 
performance against whoever they play if they make it past the first round. So, Kai, knowing how you uh, interpret the game and from the people that you uh, get to speak to within the league, what is the sense that you would get if the Sixers were to lose in the first round? What changes do you think happen to the Sixers this off this offseason? Brett's gone. Straight up. I mean, an Eastern Conference executive already came out and said if, if they lose round one and round two, then, yeah, Brett's gone. And that is the vibe I get around this team. Um, that was kind of the vibe when you kind of talk to Elton Brand, either through press conferences or when I was actually out in L.A. at Staples Center, I was talking to Elton in the hallway there. That's the vibe I got there. So the way I see it is if they lose round one, yeah, is definitely gone. If you get to round two and they lose again, you're gone. And then if you get to the Eastern Conference Finals and let's just say you get swept or lose in five, then he's gone. The only way Brett saves his job is if that is if a Kawhi-type bounce happens in game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals rather than the semifinals and, or they get to the NBA Finals. That's really the only way he saves his job. And then looking into the future, if you try this again with a new coach with Ben and Joe and see what you can do with there and you still come up short, then one of them will be gone next offseason if it doesn't work out. I did want to touch on that, Nick. Sorry, I know you, your question's coming up. Sorry, I just wanted to jump on that. So uh, more to that point, though, um, other than obviously Brett Brown coaching for his job, basically, there's also been the talk about uh, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid being together for the long term. Obviously, uh, both guys have uh, signed their extensions to put them there for a while. Um, but do you think, let's say they lose in the first round or the second round isn't competitive or they, you know, just don't look good. Um, do you think there's a possibility that the Sixers trade one of Simmons or Embiid? Yeah, in summer of 2021. Because you're, you're, you're going to try this again with another coach because you're not going to just all of a sudden give up on a 24-year-old all-star who all of a sudden is breaking out of his shell and starting to shoot threes and a 26-year-old all-star who's arguably the best center in the game. It comes down to either him or Nikola Jokic. So the way it is going to work out, and I, I need people to hear this. Two years ago, Joel and Ben, the offensive pairing, had an offensive rating of 115.8. Last year, it was 115.2. This year, it's dropped to 104.2. I wonder why. You took away their shooters and put Al Horford next to them and gave him $109 million. Listen, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons are not the problem. I put a lot of their failures this season on Elton Brand. I will give Elton Brand a little bit of criticism here because, again, if this was 2005, the Al Horford signing would be great. But it's 2020. It doesn't work that way. I get what you're trying to do. But in 2020, that tall lineup doesn't work anymore. And that is where I do give a little bit of criticism to Elton Brand. Not entirely because I, he has done a really good job of putting the Sixers in position to compete for a title. But this whole Joel and Al thing has been an absolute train wreck offensively. Defensively, they've been great. Offensively, my God, it's, it's really been embarrassing. <laughs> it has been. I, 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 I don't know another way to really put it. It's been pathetic, really. Um, 
do you think that's going to be something that is addressed this offseason, or do you think that contract's going to be way too much to unload um, and that we might just be stuck with Al Horford? You're stuck with Al Horford. And, and, and it's mainly for the fact that when this season ends, he's still going to have another three years and roughly 90 million or so left on that deal. And no team is going to take that for a guy who just turned 34. So, and again, Al Horford is still a very good player. I don't want to, I don't, like, I need everybody to hear this. As I mentioned it earlier, five-time All-Star. He's a veteran guy. He's a guy who not only scores for you, but he's still a very elite defender. He rebounds. He he assists. What he doesn't do is shoot three-pointers as if he's J.J. Redick. That is really the big difference here. And that's why it hasn't worked with him and Joe. Defensively, it's been great. Joel and Al have a defensive rating of like 112.6. That's in the 95th percentile per cleaning the glass. They've been amazing defensively. How are you scoring on Joel and Al? And then you have Ben Simmons, who in my opinion should at least be in the running for defensive player of the year this year. So how are you going to score on that? Is there problems on the offensive end when in 2020 the game is centered around shooting and the Sixers don't have it because they let J.J. Reddick walk? It's kind of that simple to me when it comes to this team's issues. Now, in terms of the future, when it comes to Joel and Al, if Al continues to come off the bench and the Sixers win, then it's great. Ellen Brand, you're a genius. Brett Brown, holy shit, you cracked the code. But if you have one coming off the bench and you're losing and you still lose round one and round two, then you look at Elton Brand like, God damn, you're an idiot. And then you look at Brett Brown and you're like, oh, you moron, you're bringing an all-star off the bench? No wonder you lost. So that's the two worlds that the Sixers are really looking at moving forward. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we see how passionate Kai is, but he's right. These are all... This is an interesting team. It's pretty much an enigma when it comes to the NBA. Um, So this will be more of a personal question for you, Kai, just to give our listeners and probably your listeners who listen to this because of your clout. um, Ever since March happened and, you know, everything shut down and then we're trying to bring everything back, obviously you still had to do your job as a reporter writing for Sixers Wire of USA Today. But can you just give us a glimpse into how things have changed before and after that fateful date in March? All right. Um, I guess we'll just kind of take it back to that night because uh, I was actually at Wells Fargo Center the night it happened. Um, Philadelphia was hosting the Detroit Pistons. And I remember it vividly. It was around halftime of that game, um, you know, it's about an hour into it, which means eight o'clock in OKC, the Thunder and the Jazz were supposed to tip off. Um, and then, you know, the notification, that tweet from Shams and Woj, you know, comes across your screen, um, Jazz and Thunder delayed. And immediately, the first thought you go to at that time is, oh, coronavirus, like what else could it possibly be? Uh, did I think the game was gonna be postponed? No, I mean, the players are dressed. They're about to tip off. The fans are there. No, come on, let's play. And then the second notification, like maybe 10 minutes later, says Thunder Jazz postponed. And I remember I'm, I'm, I'm sitting next to a colleague of mine, you know, second half of Sixers Pistons are playing, and I'm looking at, I'm looking at them, and we both just kind of, we're, 
our eyes are wide, we're shaking our heads, we're confused, we don't know what's going on. Um, but from that point on, whatever was going on on the floor between Detroit and Philadelphia did not mean a thing to me. It just didn't. Philadelphia was kicking their ass anyway. Detroit sucks. So, <laughs> I mean, Detroit, Detroit's terrible. So, whatever was going on on the floor just did not matter. Uh, the game ends. Sixers win it 124-106. to 106. Still no updates yet. I'm walking to the press conference room. We're talking to, we're getting ready to talk to Brett about the, another home win, and um, and then it it hit me the Shams tweet: Utah Jazz and Rudy Gobert test positive for coronavirus. And then I think like 30 seconds later, NBA suspend season. So literally, it was just a state of confusion, a state of shock, a state of. Um, just a lot of murmuring to each other. Nobody really knew what to do next. Uh, and then the Sixers media relations came out. They gave us Brett and Elton and then told us to get out. <laughs> uh, that was kind of it. It was really weird. It felt surreal. It was scary, really, to me. Um, and, and looking back on it, it, it was just like, it was just a really surreal night. I remember writing some, like a, my own kind of personal account. I saved it on my phone where like, I'm going to look back on that for years to come. And, you know, it's going to be a night I'll never forget. And then from that point on, there's no media availability. So at that point, I'm getting asked to try to push out four articles a day. And I'm like, on what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want me to write about? <laughs> so... You're, you're kind of scraping at the bottom of the barrel for content. You know, you're, you're looking for, uh, you're, you're scouring their social media accounts, hoping one of them tweets or posts something stupid, you, you know, which, which when you have Joel Embiid on the team, he, 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 he helps me out with that. <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, Tobias is a guy who could be a clown sometimes on there. And then, and, you know, we all know about Matisse's, um, you know, bubbly personality, I'll say that. So, you know, like th th there are a lot of clowns on this team, a lot of personalities on this team. So that kind of helped. And then, you know, you're coming up with a lot of top fives. So like, I mean, but after a while, you run out of top five ideas. So it got to a point where it was like, I was like, all right, I'll rank the top five guys. So wear the number nine jersey in Sixers history. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that, that, that'll do it. That, that's the ticket. That'll do it. So, yeah, at that point, you're struggling. You're struggling for content. And then uh, we launched our the Bell, the Bell Ringer podcast, which is up on Apple and Spotify and everything else in between. Uh, me and Cameron Fields, my, my co-host, we launched that as well. Um, but, yeah, it was, a, uh, it, it was a tough time, like, during this whole thing. And, and I remember the, the minute that they announced media availability, it was kind of like, you know, like a huge just weight lifted off because you're like, oh, my God, I finally have a clue on what to write about. Have I have something? All right. So where does that where does that leave you now? Like, how is covering games remotely? Oh, oh, they're interesting. Um, <laughs> well, for one, I need everybody to know that I'm I've been wearing my suit on game days, <laughs> like even in my house. <laughs> Always keeping it professional. Like, like, like I I wore my suit, my my nice blue suit. Uh, to on Friday's first scrimmage game, uh, Sunday against OKC, I threw on the gray suit. I threw on the tie. I actually I wore my media credential both games too. I just sat in my bed and uh, watched these games. <laughs> so uh, I mean, I, I worked too hard to get a full season credential this year just to have it waste on my dresser. So it's getting worn. I don't care what anybody says. 
Um, and then, you know, during game day, you had pregame availability. So, and then obviously postgame as well. So pregame, you're kind of sitting here waiting for the Zoom link. And, uh, you know, you're talking to, to, to Brett through this Zoom call that, you know, as you would as if we were at the arena in person. And then uh, as soon as the final buzzer sounds, you're back on that same Zoom link waiting for Brett and a couple of players to come out and, and then practice as well. They have, you know, before practice, you have media availability before practice. So again, you're waiting for all these Zoom calls. And um, it's a little tougher just for the simple fact that a lot of the biggest part about this business is building relationships, talking to a guy face-to-face, talking to a guy one-on-one. Um, my best stuff this year came from when I was able to pull a guy away from a media scrum and talk to him by myself one-on-one. Uh, Josh Richardson, for example, I did a story on Josh and I set up a one-on-one with him. We talked for 10 minutes about his life in Miami and we talked about his life growing up and uh, he told me he had three iguanas that he had in his backyard and he named them OG Larry, Skittish Terry, and uh, I, I forget the other one, but like there were, <laughs> like, like that iguana story actually lifted off because I was the only one who had that and it got picked up by the ringer and ESPN used it and everything else. So most of my big stories come from when I can pull a guy off to the side, but you can't talk to these guys one-on-one through a Zoom call when 30, 40 reporters are on one call. We all have that quote. So, you know, it's kind of, it has made it a little bit tougher. It makes the job a little weirder. Um, but at the same time, you, you know, you got to adapt. You know, as Billy Bean, uh, Brad Pitt, as Billy Bean said in Moneyball, you got to adapt or die. All right. So, uh, looks like we're starting to uh, run out of time. So, right now we'll do a good uh, time check. So, Nick, do you have any more uh, questions for Mr. Carlin before he goes? Um, I, I have two more, and I kind of want to – I'll try to lump them into the same kind of thing. How do you make heads or tails of an environment where, where there – we kind of touched on it a little bit, where there is no home court advantage, you know, like where, um, you know, in the playoffs, in a seven-game series, the team with the higher seeding should have four versus three. Um, how do you – envision that playing out obviously this is what it is we have to make the most of it it's less than ideal but give me your thoughts on that i really don't feel like the home court advantage is going to be like a um like a huge thing and it's just for the simple fact that and sharif i know know you've seen it nick i don't know if you've seen it but uh, the documentary on the dream team uh when they had that crazy scrimmage in the middle of practice and it was the most competitive thing that anybody's ever seen heard talked about as a basketball player, you go out there and hoop. You, like, it, it doesn't matter if there's 30 million people in the, in the stands or if it's just you and your parents, you know, rooting you on. Right. You're, you're going to go out there and you're going to play basketball to the best of your ability. So I, I really feel like the level of play we're going to receive is not going to be um, like, like really anything crazy. I feel like we're still going to get playoff level basketball. I feel like we're still going to get a lot of these guys playing hard. Uh, for example, I mean, I'm, I'm watching the Rockets and the Grizzlies right now, like as we're doing this podcast. And I mean, it's been cool. Russell Westbrook is still playing hard. James Harden's playing hard. Memphis is going out there with John Morant, Jonas Valanciunas and Jaron Jackson Jr. and trying to get a win. You know, these guys are competitive. So I feel like the level of basketball will be great in terms of the energy. 
you're going to have to turn to your bench guys. You're going to have to turn to your bench and have them get hyped after like every big play to give you the energy that you need to when you go in a slump, you got your guy on the bench rooting for you that way. So I feel like the level of play is going to be great. And in terms of finding energy, you're going to have to kind of turn to your guys on the bench and be like, yo, help us out. All right. Um, so that will do it for uh, this portion of our interview with our insider for the full contact podcast, Mr. Kai Carlin. Um, Kai, if any of our listeners want to follow you on social media, you know, like, what's your Twitter handle? Come on, though. You're the man, do it. All right, you can hit me up on Twitter and on Instagram, Kai underscore Carlin. Uh, you can also check out the Bell Ringer podcast over on, on Apple and Spotify and check us out on SixersWire.com. Cool. All right, Nick, uh, any last remarks? Yeah. Carlin goes. Kai, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on and sharing your, sharing your uh, insider perspective with us. It's definitely been helpful, and I, I hope that um, – you know, a lot of people out there get to listen to this and it gives them a better idea of what's going on in the NBA and particularly, particularly our 76ers. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. I definitely appreciate it. No problem, Kai. Catch you on the flip side, man. Yep. <laughs> All right. And then, Nick, at the bottom to stop recording, there's like, there should be like three little dots and then you click on that and it should say stop recording. All right, y'all. Um, I know that I said at the beginning of the show this was going to be dedicated just to the NBA restart, but I'm sorry, I couldn't wait. Um, there was some big news that happened yesterday. Um, for those of you who are not in the know when it comes to the NFL, um, the Jets traded uh, safety Jamal Adams to the Seattle Seahawks. Um, details on the deal. Uh, the Seahawks get uh, Jamal Adams along with a 2022 fourth-round pick. The Jets get first-round picks for 2021 and 2022. And in 2021, they also get a third-round pick. And they also get Seattle safety Bradley McDougal. So right off the bat, um, I actually thought the Jets weren't going to trade him. But I guess that was just the BS they were feeding us. Um, but before I get into my take, uh, Nick, I know you said that you just have a reaction to the trade. So what what do you think about this trade? All right. This trade is just so wild on every level that you try to look at it from. Um, the Jets were at least saying that they were adamant that Jamal Adams was part of their future. Um the, the deal was that Jamal Adams was disgruntled with the organization. He wanted an extension earlier. Um, unfortunately, teams were kind of unwilling to negotiate like that right now because of coronavirus. So it was just kind of crazy. Um, all I can say is like Jamal Adams, the caliber of player that he is, is kind of, he's, he's basically generational. You know what I mean? When you get a guy who comes right. – who uh, is a pro bowler right out, right out, yeah, right out the gates. Um, so make no mistake, Seattle is getting a tremendous player here and they're losing first round picks. But if you look back in Seattle's history, they're not even, 
they don't even use their first round picks very well. So it's like, all right, do they even care? Um, and then you look at the Jets, and oh my God, like, of course you're upset that you lose a, a guy of Jamal Adams' caliber. But when you're getting this many picks and a player, it's like, well, I don't know. It's just crazy. It's <laughs> crazy. I don't think that there is a true winner or loser. I think that the Jets are happy with their haul. And I think that the Seahawks, knowing their first round pick woes, uh, have to be happy with acquiring Jamal Adams. So when I first saw this trade, I was, I want to say shocked, but I guess I can't really be shocked because, I mean, Jamal Adams has been pretty much pulling a borderline Antonio Brown to Oakland Raiders to, like, get out from New York. Um, it's hard to say because I, a lot of people will say that, or at least from the people I've been listening to across various networks, that, you know, Jamal Adams, even though he's, like you said, Nick, a generational player, he does not play a premium position, at least within the current landscape for the NFL. Now, does that mean he's not worth two first-round picks? Well, this guy was is a two-time Pro Bowler in his three years in the league, and he pretty much is a leader in most categories for safeties except interceptions, and that's the one knock people have against Jamal Adams, that he's not much of a ball hawk or a coverage guy. He's more like a in-the-box in safety, like Landon Collins style or something like that, which is a still a valuable player, but I guess I can see why some are against providing that kind of a haul to get a player like that who doesn't play a premium position, even if it, even if it was he's not the kind of guy you would want in that position to pay all that money for and or draft capital. But ultimately, I think it was just something that had to happen. I mean, the Jets, I mean, obviously they had me fooled because I genuinely believed that they had no intention on trading him. And all the while, they were clearly negotiating. So uh, I got to give credit to uh, general manager uh, Joe Douglas, formerly of the Eagles. For the Seahawks, it gives their defense a boost, which for everything that happens to Seattle is how does it help Russell Wilson, Um, which I think it helps the defense, which will at least uh, help Russell Wilson not have to do so many spectaculars. But – I got to say, now I don't know what to think about the Jets because Jamal Adams, we all know he really made all that noise because he wanted his money. I think he would have stayed with the Jets if they gave him his money. And then when he felt like they weren't taking him serious, because obviously they have his rights for literally three three more years, he, you know, attacked the organization from top to bottom, you know, uh, owner, or I guess former owner or, however that's working, Woody Johnson. I mean, that was for various – that was for correct reasons. But then you think with Adam Gaze. Um, Nick, I, would you have – if you put yourself in the shoes of an NFL GM, would you give up two first-round picks and one third-round pick and a starting safety for someone like Jamal Adams? Uh, 
No. No. Um, and that has, that's nothing against Jamal Adams. Um, that's just, I feel like there's so much I could do with those picks. I, and, and it's kind of just my mentality. I like to think down the road more than at the time being in the present. You know what I mean? Because I, I always want to set myself up for um, future successes as well. Um, no, I don't think I would. And especially every, every player in the NFL who lasts any kind of time is going to have some kind of, you know, necessary con- uh, contract negotiations and hopefully healthy conflict between them and the organization. Um, now, the Jets as an organization, um, I don't know. I, I'll be honest, I don't know much about them. Uh, if their football team is much of a reflection on their front office, I would say it doesn't bode well. Um, I especially wouldn't give this much for a guy who is this willing to thrash his employer. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and that's, that's not really a, an indictment of Jamal Adams, uh, the player. He is a tremendous player. Just, I don't know. Give me pause for call, cause for pause. There we go. All right. Uh, so there you guys have it. Our uh, loyal listeners our. uh, fellow men and women who love sports like us. Um, You heard us talk, well, you heard uh, Kai Carlin, one of our friends of the pod who does spectacular work for uh, USA Today Sports Media Group and Sixers Wire. Um, We're trying to have him on more often, but as you can imagine, as an NBA reporter, he doesn't have much free time. So we try to get him when we can for y'all. Um, and obviously those are our thoughts on the Jamal Adams trade. Um, before we go, uh, Nick, I'm not sure if this was uh, your thing or Brian was trying to make it your thing. Um, if people wanted to, you know, follow the show on social media and listen to the podcast, um, do you have that information ready for them to put on their smartphones? Yeah. So you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, full contact pod no spaces all lowercase um can even i think it's probably backwards but you get the idea (laughs) full contact pod no spaces and then of course find us on uh soundcloud itunes spotify we're we're all over the place so yeah give us a give us a listen all right And uh, just in case you want to follow us individually, you already got the social media information from Kai. If you wanted to follow this handsome gentleman that did the podcast with me, uh, Nick Sapina, that's at Nick Sapina, capital N, capital Z, lowercase Pina, but. (laughs) um, And obviously Brian, who could not uh, join the show with us, unfortunately, um, I believe he was having uh, friends over. I'm not sure uh, what was going on there. Um, I'm actually having a hard time finding him on Twitter. So uh, do you know what? Yeah. At bclegg 39 No spaces. Okay. And for me, even though I don't do Twitter, even though I have one, but just in case you guys want to give me a follow, um, you can follow me at Sharif Keaton. That's capital S, capital K. Lower case eaten. Um, that's all we have for y'all at the 
for the Full Contact podcast. Um, please follow us on all our social media, especially for the show. We're trying to grow along with our audience. Um, we thank you all for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Adios.